world-class sports person performing at the height of their powers. And I'm not referring to Paul Wood what? doing frisbee <laughs> in the park. Serena Williams or Novak Djokovic at Wimbledon. Real Madrid versus Barcelona at the Bernabeu. Brian Lara scoring one of his 34 test centuries. Or the British cycling team at the London Olympics. Or maybe music's more your thing. Maybe you've been to some world-class performances at the O2 Arena or the Albert Hall, if black bow ties are more your style. Sometimes when you watch someone performing at the height of their powers and their ability, you just have to sit back and admire, and you go, wow. And the effect of that brilliance in front of you is so captivating that you just have to sit and take it all in. And there are times in John's Gospel where the author almost seems to stand back and get out of the way and just let us watch and absorb and be mesmerized. It says of Jesus, no one ever taught like this man. And here we just have a tremendous example of revelation, power flowing out from his mouth onto the page, into the lives of the hearers and into our lives. And I think our response is just to take it in, to take it in, to drink deeply of this pure stream of revelation. This passage is an example like that. And uh, I think we can just stand back and feel the power and wonder of the moment. Um, sometimes when the Bible is taught, quite rightly, there's a sort of application brought, you know, why don't we go away and do this? Or why don't we put this into practice this week? I actually think today the best thing we can do to respond to the Word of God today is actually to respond to it here and now and to drink it in here and now and to drink in the truth of who Christ is, the revelation that's coming from him. And as we worship again in a few minutes... Let's just uh, draw near to him. Let's let this wonderful person of Christ become more and more precious to us. Uh, the passage we're going to read actually is um, from John chapter 6. We're going to pick it up from verse 25. But the background to it is the miracle that's recorded a few verses earlier in chapter 6, the feeding of the 5,000. It's one of the most extraordinary miracles in the whole of the Bible. And it's recorded in all of the four Gospels. And this uh, amazing multiplication of bread finishes with a slightly unusual note in John's Gospel. In chapter 6, verse 14, we read this. After the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who is to come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, <clears throat> withdrew again to a mountain by himself. <clears throat> so there's this adulation. People are mesmerized at what's happened. And they think, let's make him king. But Jesus doesn't want to be their king in that sense. And he withdraws physically from their presence. And it's on the back of that miracle that then Jesus brings this amazing uh, teaching on him being the bread of life. The geography of these events is also important. I think we've got a map there, have we? Okay, so the feeding of the 5,000 is traditionally uh, understood to have taken place in the sort of northwest Sea of Galilee. So Sea of Galilee, northern Israel, this is during Jesus' Galilean ministry. And towards the northwest of the Sea of Galilee, uh, there's the town of Gennesaret. And in that region somewhere, probably the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is believed to have taken place. At least by the 4th century, that was widely believed because they built a big church building on top of the supposed place. So uh, that is the traditional location of it. The story we're going to read takes place in Capernaum to the north. And Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. I know we always think of Jesus of Nazareth, but actually during his Galilean ministry, he was based in Capernaum 
He lived in the house of Simon uh, Peter, the fisherman. And uh, we know from the gospel records, Mark's gospel particularly, that uh, Simon Peter lived there with his family. Uh, There's a healing event recorded of Simon's mother-in-law. All took place within that house. Many of the teachings took place in and around that house. Sometimes the house was uh, bursting at the seams. People were out in the courtyards. Uh, Sometimes it was just private conversations with Jesus' disciples. In many ways, you could say that the the gathering in the Capernaum house was actually Jesus' local church during his Galilean ministry, and he traveled to and forth from there um, in many of the uh, records that we have in the, in the Gospels. So Capernaum is where it's taking place, and we also see in this passage people arriving on the scene from the city of Tiberias, which is there on the western side, uh, and that features as well in the story. So keep this geography in mind, please, as we pick up the story from John chapter 6. Verse 25. Let's just pray together, shall we, as we look at God's word. Father, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that we gather today in the name of Jesus. And we come to you, Lord, hungry, thirsty for you. Would you feed us, Lord? Would you open our hearts and minds? Would you speak to us, Father? Where we're hungry, would you feed us? Where we're in need, would you meet it? Where we are lost, would you draw us? Would you restore and build up and gather and strengthen? In Jesus' name. In verse 25, we read this. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, you are looking for me not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. The teaching begins with a question by the crowds. They're puzzled as to how Jesus had reached the other side of the lake without them knowing. The crowds are on the northwest side of the lake we saw on the map where the miracle of feeding of 5,000 had taken place. They've seen his disciples get into a boat the night before without Jesus, and they now receive news from people who had just arrived from Tiberias on the western side that Jesus was not there. So he wasn't where the miracle had happened. He wasn't in Tiberias. The logical conclusion was he'd gone to his hometown of Capernaum, and they were correct. So when they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Had Jesus chosen to answer that question directly, The answer would have been, I arrived in the early hours of the morning, having walked across the Sea of Galilee, and then finished the last part of my journey in a boat with shocked disciples. Instead, as is so often the case, Jesus addresses the issue behind the question. He doesn't answer the question directly, but he says this, I tell you the truth, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. John writes often in his Gospel of Signs, done by Jesus. It's a very favorite term of his. Uh, In fact, the word occurs 18 times in the Gospel of John, more than any other book in the Bible. Uh, Some of the key examples of signs we've just listed here, the uh, turning of the water into wine, the uh, healing of the official's son, healing of the invalid at Bethesda, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000 is called a sign, the healing of the man born blind, the Pharisees call that a sign, and the raising of Lazarus from the dead are among the more well-known signs are recorded in John's Gospel. There's a paradox in Jesus' words at this point, however. He says that the people were not looking for him because they saw the signs he performed. 
And yet, in chapter 6, we've already seen in verse uh, 14 that after the people saw the miraculous sign that Jesus did, they began to say. And in chapter 6, verse 2, we note this, that the great crowd of people followed him because they saw the miraculous signs he had performed on the sick. So there's a paradox. He says the people are not looking for him because they saw the signs he performed. And yet, the text clearly says they did in fact see signs he performed. So how could Jesus say they were not seeking him because they saw signs performed? The paradox is perhaps best resolved when we think about what it means when John says, or when John uses the word to see in this passage. Uh, Luke has an account of this Galilean ministry, and in this account, in Luke's gospel, he, can, he records many of the same events, but he also adds a number of parables which are not present in the, John's account. And in that section of parables, Jesus explains his reason for using parables, and he quotes from Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah chapter 6. Have we got that quote, uh, Luke's gospel? He said, the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of God has been given to you, but to others I speak in parables, so that though seeing they may not see, though hearing they may not understand. It's a commonly held belief amongst Christians that Jesus used parables to enlighten people through easy-to-understand folksy stories. But actually, Jesus says the real reason he spoke in parables was to conceal truth from people not capable of understanding it. Though seeing, they may not see. Though hearing, they may not understand. You see, there is a seeing and an understanding which take place when one grasps a parable, which is different to merely hearing it spoken and imagining the story at a cognitive level. In this sense, seeing has to do with seeing and understanding, seeing and, and grasping the significance of it. And Jesus, in John chapter 6, says, you are uh, not looking for me because you saw miraculous signs. Perhaps what he's getting at there is you, you didn't see the significance of those signs. You didn't really see their meaning. You didn't really understand them. You'd observed the phenomenon, but you hadn't really understood the significance to which the signs pointed. Signs by their very nature, point away from themselves to something else. We've got an example, there we go. So signs point to something else other than themselves. And Jesus is talking about a sign which the people have not seen. They haven't seen and understood it. They'd been satisfied with the meal that Jesus had miraculously provided for them, and they had misinterpreted the meal as a sign that Jesus was the prophet of Israel who should be made king and lead a revolt against Roman occupation. And it was that belief that had caused Jesus to withdraw from them to the nearby hills. He had no intention of being forced into their political agenda. If you'd asked the crowd what the miraculous feeding had meant, they would have said something like these. We were hungry and Jesus the prophet fed us. It was amazing. We want him to be our king. And Jesus seems to be implying that the people were not looking away from the sign to that which had signified. They were seeing but not seeing. Having held up a mirror to the people, Jesus now graciously provides them with insight into the significance of the food multiplication miracle. And he does it by teaching them in verse 27. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. So he draws a contrast in their minds between food that spoils and food that endures. Keep that contrast in mind. The food that spoils and the food that endures. The food that endures lasts unto eternal life. 
and it's given by the Son of Man. Son of Man is one of Jesus' favorite terms for himself. Contrary to some beliefs, Son of Man is actually a divine term. It's, it's uh, rooted there in the book of Daniel. We have a quote from there where we see this figure, like a Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So in Daniel's vision in the Old Testament, Son of Man was a divine being, exercising the authority of God on God's behalf. And the Son of Man receives the worship of nations and an everlasting heavenly kingdom. So this is not some enlightened humanist. This is a divine being, Son of Man. Like the Son of Man in Daniel's vision, Jesus, the Son of Man, has received the approval of God the Father. And this seal of approval he refers to probably refers to Jesus having received the Spirit without measure at his baptism. So he tells the crowds not to work for food that spoils, but for food that endures, given by God through the divine Son. Christ is pointing to them to himself as the source of true life and sustenance. So far, so good. The crowd are on side, and they ask a question. How do we get this bread? Verse 28. Then they asked him, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus had said to them, don't work for food that spoils. So this word work is repeated. What do we do? What work must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. The crowds wanted to know what they had to do to earn the food that Jesus was exhorting them to seek. And his answer was full of wonder and full of grace. The work of God is to believe in Christ. The food that spoils must be bought with money, that's earned through labor or trade, and the food that endures to eternal life is received by faith in Christ alone. Questions now start to flow one after another from his hearers. That seems a reasonable request at one level. They asked him in verse 30, what sign will you give us <laughs> that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So, this people who have just seen a sign the previous day, miraculous multiplication of food, and Jesus said to them, you've seen it, but you've not seen it. You haven't seen it. You haven't grasped its significance. They now ask Jesus for a sign to authenticate his claims that he's received the favor of God. And they're helping him on his way as he's thinking maybe about what sign he might like to perform for the crowds. This is in their mindset. They even offer him a suggestion. Now, they just experienced a food miracle, right? So multiplication of food is in their minds. And so they think about one of Israel's greatest miracles, the multiplication of manna in the wilderness when Israel came out of Egypt, the provision of manna. These events took place around the time of the Passover, the annual commemoration of Israel's departure from Egypt, when miraculous food was on people's minds. As it happens, this bread of life teaching took place near the time of the Jewish Passover. That's recorded in John chapter 6 and verse 4. The Jewish Passover feast was near. So people's minds are thinking about Passover that's coming up, unleavened bread, the miracle of Exodus, manna, that whole story. And Jesus has just done a bread multiplication miracle that's fed thousands. 
And so they're thinking about bread. And they ask the Son of Man, what sign will you give us to show you're really who you say you are, that you're approved by God? And they think, I know, we'll ask him for a food miracle. What about the one Moses did? The multiplication of manna. They suggest that one to him. And he even gave him a quotation from Scripture in case he was stuck for ideas. <laughs> they are quoting from Psalm 78 that God provided for them. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. We are now entering the world of deep irony. Though seeing and eating the sign of the multiplication of bread and fish, the crowd who have not seen the significance of the sign are now demanding a sign. And the, uh, the demand for a sign appears to arise in part from Jesus' claim that he's received the Father's seal of approval. Israel seemed to be approved by God. God provided manna for them. What are you going to show us to demonstrate God's approval of you? Jesus responds to their confused questioning in verse 20, uh, 32. Very truly, I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. This is such a moving statement. Here in time and space, the eternal meets the temporal. Heaven touches earth. Jesus is not denying the reality of the manna miracle. He's not denying that story. But he's inviting his readers or his listeners to radically re-understand the significance of it. That it is actually pointing towards a greater miracle, a manifestation of bread from heaven here in the divine person of the Son of Man. In stating that it is not Moses who's given you bread from heaven, Jesus is not denying the truth of the scriptures, but he is challenging their application of the text. The word bread occurs four times in these two verses. Bread, 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 bread. He wants the people to think about what they're eating, what they're consuming. And there's this parallel discussion going on, isn't there, between the bread that endures and the bread that perishes. Natural bread, supernatural bread. He is the staple diet that sustains all life. And there's a compare and a contrast going on here between manna and true bread. Do we have that slide? Yeah. Similarities and differences between the manna that was given in the Exodus and the true bread that's come down from heaven. Among the rich meaning of this bread of life teaching is surely the fact that the bread that Jesus is talking about is unlimited in supply and miraculous in quantity. That was part of the significance of the multiplication of bread miracle. There's no limit to it. Thousands and thousands of people fed miraculously. And this is in part because the bread that is in front of them now, speaking to them, is for the feeding of the whole world. He gives life to the whole world. The crowd are intrigued. Verse 34, Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. 
For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. Now, apparently, Jesus is speaking very plainly. He is the bread of life. He is the bread from heaven. He is the ultimate manna. The world, not just Israel, is to be fed on the person of Jesus Christ. The uh, city of Tiberias I mentioned, we've got it on the map again, was um, originally founded as a Gentile city. And uh, it was founded by Herod Antipas, the son of uh, Herod the Great. And it was named in honor of the Roman emperor Tiberius. And it was a center of Greek culture and Greek religion. In Jesus' day, it had a slightly more mixed population. There were more Jewish people living there than when it was first founded, but it still remained uh, essentially Greek city. And it's perhaps significant that Jesus' teaching with its international perspective, bread for the whole world, is addressed to this more uh, religiously and ethnically diverse crowd of people, some of whom had come up from Tiberias. And so at this point, the contrast with manna becomes greater. Whereas manna lasted for one day, the true bread from heaven provides an end to hunger forever for those who eat it. The Son of Man himself is the bread of life. Not only that, this bread satisfies thirst as well. It's unusual bread. Bread often makes people more thirsty. Jesus has not referred to thirst or water at this point, but the bread he's talking about satisfies hunger and thirst. And the issue the crowd need is to feed on Jesus Christ by faith. The sign they had asked for was right in front of them. Show us a sign. He's right there. The bread that's come down from heaven. And there was therefore a division within the crowd. In verse 41, At this the Jews began to grumble about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. <clears throat> and they said, Is this not Jesus, son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I came down from heaven? So the mood begins to change in the crowd, from interest to grumbling. In the wilderness, when the people of Israel were hungry, we're told that they grumbled against Moses. Now, as the true bread from heaven is revealed to them, the people begin to grumble again. And at one level, the complaint seems reasonable enough. How can a physical man claim to have come down from heaven? This wasn't any man. This was a local man. Uh, Nazareth was not far from this area, the place where Jesus grew up his childhood home. Joseph and Mary, Jesus' parents, were local to the area and were known by many within the crowd. The claim that the carpenter's son had come down from heaven seemed utterly ridiculous. It was a bit like that conversation Jesus had with Nicodemus. How can a man be born again when he is old? They just didn't see it. They didn't understand what he was saying. And we can't help but be amazed at Jesus' teaching methods in response to these questions. In verse 43, Jesus says, stop grumbling among yourselves. So his response to the crowd's grumbling is to challenge it. Stop grumbling amongst yourselves. We can't help be struck not only by the content of his teaching, but his radical teaching method. Here he is challenging them directly. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one who has seen the Father, and no one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. 
I am the living bread which came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. Then he really takes it up a notch. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Two things are going on in these verses. Firstly, Jesus is repeating his main teaching point, the point he's made about him being the bread of life. I'm the bread of life. I'm the living bread that came down from heaven. Anyone who eats this bread receives eternal life. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. The one who believes has eternal life. So he's repeating that main point. I'll let you in a little secret, shall I? Most sermons have one point, even though they might have three, four, 17, or 18. Most of the time, when people are trying to teach from the Bible, there's usually one point. And Jesus has one point he's trying to make here. He is the bread of life. And he keeps repeating it, and he keeps coming at it from different angles. He is the bread of life. And he's repeating, reinforcing his central teaching point. At the same time, Jesus is sifting through the crowd. He recognizes that an understanding of these gospel truths is not given to everyone, but only to those who are given such understanding by God the Father. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them and I will raise them up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. An understanding of what it means to feed on Christ by faith is not dependent on the hearers being given a sign. Nor is it dependent on the intelligence of the hearers or their religious background. Rather, hearers can only see the sign that is in front of them if they are drawn to that conclusion by God the Father. Such a drawing, such a calling is described here as being taught by God. And those who have received such instruction from God will, as a matter of course, also be drawn to Jesus Christ. Now, that may raise a whole lot of questions for you in my mind, in your mind, about that, that, these statements. One of the great encouragements I take from this truth is it gives me some hope in evangelism. It actually gives me hope because God wants to draw people. (laughs) It's not dependent on the person in front of me. It's not dependent on their ability, their educational background, their need, their ethnicity, or any other human factor. It's not dependent on me, actually. It's not dependent on my ability to impress them. There is an activity of God the Father in drawing people to an understanding of who Christ is that is unique. Only God can do that. You can't do it. I can't do it. Only God can do it. And Jesus recognizes that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. And I will raise them up at the last day. So there is this calling that comes. And people hear it. They see it. They understand it. And it's a work of God in the heart and mind of the individual. And as if to leave us here as in no doubt about his claims and to reinforce that his words can only be received by those taught by God, Jesus concludes with an even more provocative statement, this bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. He is being deliberately explicit. The bread that must be eaten in order to receive eternal life is not merely the teachings of Jesus, nor is it the Christ of faith, uh, a nice abstraction of Jesus framed in religious language. The bread, rather, is Jesus' very flesh. The bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. This teaching has been challenging already. Bread from heaven, carpenter's son. Now it becomes even more challenging. 
Jesus radically reinterprets interprets our understanding of the key event in their religious life, the Exodus. And he talks about himself as the fulfillment of that greater uh, a bread from heaven that's coming down. Not only that, he says the flesh is his own blood, his own flesh and blood. The bread is his own flesh. And the Jews who hear him are horrified. In verse 52, they begin to argue sharply among themselves. <laughs> so they're not arguing with him, they're arguing with each other. This is healthy New Testament Bible teaching. It provokes conflict in the congregation. And see, Andy Monday is about to start having an argument with someone. <laughs> Jesus said to them, as they're sharply disputing with each other, he says, I tell you the truth, very truly, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real food, and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. They are horrified. They're appalled. He's now extended the bread-eating metaphor to flesh, to eating flesh, to drinking blood. This is no slip of the tongue. This is not some local rabbi who's been caught up in the heat of the moment, the popularity of the crowd has sort of got to his head and he said things he later regrets. No, no, he's quite intent. He's quite deliberate. He uses this word real, real food, real drink. It's the same word in the Greek text as used in verse 32 when he talks about uh, the true bread, the true bread that's come down from heaven. It's the same word. It's authentic, that which corresponds to reality. Real bread, real food, is my flesh and my blood, says Christ. Jesus wants to reinforce the truth. That this is not uh, a little slip of the tongue. He means exactly what he says, that life is found nowhere else than by truly feeding on the flesh and blood of the Son of Man. That is, by receiving into ourselves by faith the benefits of his sacrificial death for sins. For in Leviticus it says the life of the animal is in its blood. And in Christ giving his life and pouring out his life unto death and shedding his blood. He was making atonement for the sins of the people. And by faith in Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Greeks, in belief in Christ as crucified Savior and Lord, we share in the very life of God himself. The life that is in Christ, that comes from the Father, we share in that same life as we feed on him by faith. Not for the first time, Jesus Christ is breaking all the rules. He must have surely been aware of how difficult this teaching was for his hearers. Not only to understand it, but also to embrace it. But he appears indifferent to their difficulty. <laughs> was that just my reading of it? What on earth could have motivated the son to speak in such shocking terms? A few years ago, I stumbled into a discussion with a, um, <clears throat> a man who wanted the church to take a particular view on a particular area of, so of sexual ethics. And uh, the argument he made, I'm paraphrasing, was if you take this view and you, you become more accommodating in your beliefs about this particular area, more people will want to come to church because they'll find you more accepting. Now, 
We could respond to that claim in many ways. We could look at the Church of Sweden, which is the most accommodating church in the world in terms of its sexual ethics, and no one wants to go to it. It's virtually dead. But apart from that pragmatic response, I also struggled with the, the man's um, argument on another level. He made this argument. He said, you want lots of people to come to church, don't you? Well, you've got to make it easier for them. And I agreed with him on so many things he was saying, but I didn't actually agree with that statement he made, that our aim is to make more people come to church. You see, our calling as believers is to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Disciples follow the teachings of Jesus Christ. They obey them. They put them into practice. And if the church does that at a higher rate than disciples die, then the church will grow numerically. That's... Right? So the church will grow. So the church growing is the consequence of effective disciple-making that is at a higher rate of production than the death rate. I mean, is that that's mathematically correct, yes? Okay. So the aim of the church is not to grow numerically. The aim of the church is to make disciples. Disciples follow and are obedient to the teachings of Christ. Numerical growth should therefore be seen as a consequence of effective disciple-making, not an objective in itself. And the crowds who are appalled at Jesus' apparently gory teaching about bread, flesh, and blood are the same crowd who the day before had tried to make him king by force. Thirty years after this event, there was a rebellion against Roman rule, and Galilee was a hotbed of Jewish nationalism. The city of Tiberias was captured by Jewish nationalists, and the, temple, uh, the Greek temple there was destroyed. Uh, Galilee was um, a, a strong center for Jewish nationalism, and there were Jewish nationalists in this crowd, independent freedom fighters. And they had an agenda, and they saw in Jesus a local, dynamic, popular young rabbi who could rally the crowds and help them to expel the Romans and establish the kingdom of God, as they saw it, by establishing a Jewish state, as in previous glory days. And Jesus was having none of it. He was actually winnowing the crowd out. He actually wanted to disperse them through this teaching. Amazing. How's that for a church growth strategy? <laughs> when people come to church, scatter them. Throughout history, the church has been vulnerable to political interference from those who see the church as a useful means to achieve their ends. Constantine, we've got a slide, here he is, uh, apparently saw a vision one night before a battle of a cross in the sky. And he heard a voice that said, in this name, uh, in this sign, conquer. And so he he authorized his soldiers to put that sign on, his, on their shields, went into battle, and won a great battle. And after that, Constantine declared himself a Christian. And actually, subsequently, Christianity was made into the official religion of the Roman Empire. You think, oh, great. Well, perhaps not so. Because <laughs> actually, as a result of that, the church became enmeshed with the empire. The church became far more worldly, far more secular after this apparent conversion. God, God alone knows. He wasn't baptized until his deathbed, but uh, God alone knows what was genuine, what was going on there. But certainly there was an attempt to co-opt Christianity into the power structure of the empire. Adolf Hitler knew that he could not eradicate the German church, so he tried to co-opt it. Under the Nazi regime in the 1930s, he created a state, or his subordinates created a state church, the National Reich Church, in modern China, the Three Self-Patriotic Church aims to provide a Christianized religion that is non-critical of the state's one-party system 
and of its appalling human rights record. And in the United States, the political right have similarly co-opted large sections of white evangelical Christianity in pursuit of electoral support amongst grassroots social conservatives. It's been going on long before this. Okay, but this is a pinnacle of it, or a low point or something. <laughs> Billy Graham said this, I don't want to see religious bigotry in any form. It would disturb me if there was a wedding between the religious fundamentalists and the political right. The hard right has no interest in religion except to manipulate it. He saw that coming. In Britain, different issues exist. In Britain, the church is expected to add its uncritical blessing to the liberal ideology of sexual freedom and inclusiveness, or risk the fury of Twitter. What could be worse? <laughs> Jesus was having none of it. He was having none of it. What a brave man. What a brave man. Thousands of people. And he's saying, he's saying these, hard, these hard things. Having initially withdrawn from the crowds, he now confronts them and appeared through his radical teaching to want to directly disperse them. He was not seeking human popularity and he refused to become the poster boy of Jewish nationalism. He saw the crowds who wanted, to who wanted him to conform to their own agendas as being a hindrance to the establishing of the kingdom of heaven, which would come through the suffering and death of the Messiah, not through military victory. Nothing could more dramatically reveal the contrasting agendas on display that day than what was to be eaten. The crowd wanted wonder bread, and Jesus offered them his own flesh and blood. In the Old Testament, there's a great story where Joshua is just on the uh, eve of battle, and the angel of the Lord encounters him. When we read about the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, it's often perhaps a pre-incarnate manifestation of Christ. And the angel of the Lord appears with a sword drawn, and Joshua looks up, startled, and he says to the angel, are you on our side, or are you on the side of the enemy? And he's ready to respond accordingly. And the angel gives a fascinating answer. The angel says, no. Which is grammatically incorrect. Are you on our side, or the, or the enemy's side? No. But as commander of the host of the armies of the Lord, I am come. In other words, he was saying to Joshua, your categories of thinking are completely inadequate for understanding what's in front of you now. You think it's your side or their side, friend or enemy. And I say to you, no, there's a completely different reality altogether that you're not yet seeing. I'm not on anyone's side in that sense. I'm not for you or for your enemies. Jesus says no. And we see this all the time. There's probably no more controversial issue than Brexit. Remain or leave. <laughs> Guess we'll find out on Tuesday, won't we? <laughs> no, we won't. <laughs> we might find something out. Leave or remain. <clears throat> Left or right. Socialist, capitalist. And Jesus says, no. No, you can't co-opt me to your pre-existing agenda. I've heard, I've heard people say all the time, oh, Jesus was a socialist. No, he wasn't. I've heard people say Jesus was a capitalist. No, he wasn't. This is the Son of Man <laughs> who receives a kingdom from the ancient of days and the worship of all the nations. He is not co-opted into our little human structures and forms. The executed Messiah did not seem to fit the current priorities of the crowd. The disciples evidently struggled with the bread of life message. And Jesus uses their discomfort to reveal that there is in fact a false disciple 
right at the center of the inner circle. In verse 60, on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching, who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, there's that word again, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are spirit and life. Yet, there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them would not believe and which would betray him. So he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. If part of the reason for Jesus to talk so shockingly about eating his flesh and drinking his blood was to sift through the crowd and disperse political hangers-on, the tactic was apparently very successful. For in verse 66 it says, from this time many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Perhaps Peter has this memorable teaching in mind when he writes years later in his letter that as you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, to you who believe, this stone is precious, but to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone that causes people to stumble, and a rock that makes them fall. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, I guarantee at some point in your Christian life, you will be offended by Jesus Christ. He is a stone that causes people to stumble, a rock that makes them fall. There's something about him that ugh, we find difficult to get over. The disciples found that here. Eat my flesh. Horrible. If you're seeking and you're inquiring about the Christian faith, you're so welcome here, glad you're here, you will also encounter this confrontation with Christ. He is a stone that causes people to stumble. We cannot co-opt him into our current busy lives and say, yes, I'll have Jesus. No, he's the Lord of glory. And the basic confession of the Christian church throughout history is this, Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. We serve him. We serve his agenda, his kingdom, his interests. And as we enter this Christmas season, we have both an opportunity and a potential pitfall. The opportunity is to talk to people about the Lord Jesus Christ, about his death, his resurrection, oh yes, and his birth, let's not forget, his teaching, his miracles. Do you know the most effective thing you can do in evangelism is just to name the name of Jesus with people. You don't have to be really super complicated about it. You don't have to be able to be a great scholar or feel like you can expound Romans. If you can say to a non-believer, I believe in Jesus, Jesus is Lord, that's a very powerful statement. You'd be amazed. That can open up all sorts of conversation. All sorts of things can result from that. It's not like you have to have all the answers to everything. But that simple Christian confession, Jesus is Lord. We have opportunities to make that confession. Keep it simple. We often erect scaffolding around that, don't we? Events and structures and everything else. Some, many of which can be very helpful. But the core is this. The individual believer confesses with their lips, Jesus is Lord. That's simple. That's very simple. Jesus is Lord. We have opportunity to do that over this Christmas season. We also have a potential pitfall. The pitfall is to domesticate the Son of Man and to go along uncritically with a greedy culture that wants to use Jesus as a useful piece of marketing 
for increasing clicks and sales. On a wider note, we're faced with the possibility of presenting to the world a non-offensive Jesus in the hope that we can somehow attract people in to the church. Alternatively, we can do what the disciples did. We can wrestle with these difficult teachings of Christ. And even if we can't quite reconcile ourselves to them, we could at least conclude, as the disciples did, Lord, to whom else shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. And in that statement, there's a kind of, almost a sort of a faith-filled resignation. I don't quite get all this yet, but I'm not leaving you, Lord. I know enough of you to know that you are true. I will follow you. You have the words of eternal life. Are you feeding on Christ? There's no other Christianity apart from that. Is Jesus a rock of offense to you? Let's fall upon him. Let's fall on this rock in humility and worship. Let's embrace our great God and Savior. I'm going to ask Jamie and the band to come and lead us in worship. Let's respond to him. Let's give him all our heart, our enthusiastic worship, our devotion. Let's feed on him by faith.